This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. By the winter of 1978, the golden age of hijacking, a period between 1967 and 1972, in which over 130 airplanes were skyjacked in the U.S., was now in the national rear view. Hijacking still happened, sure, but they were few and far between, thanks to some new security measures finally implemented at American airports. Months earlier, in the late spring of 1978, Martin McNally, Garrett Trapnell, and Kenny Johnson had tried, and failed, to break out of prison. Trapnell had convinced a mother of five, Barbara Oswald, to hijack a helicopter and land it inside the prison walls, a stunt that ended in her death. While Johnson pleaded guilty to the charges brought against him, Trapnell and McNally, despite the overwhelming evidence against them, were intent on fighting their charges. They would almost certainly be found guilty. And with this added conviction, their earliest parole date would be on the other side of 2050. They would undoubtedly spend the rest of their lives in prison with no hope of parole. The walls, it seemed, had finally closed in on them. But true to his reputation, Garrett the Fox Trapnell was never really cornered. He wouldn't go down without a fight. Well, I was at home and uh, got a phone call from my boss. He said something was going on out at the Williamson County Airport. That's Joey Helaney, who, if you can't already tell from his voice, was a general assignment reporter at WDDD Radio in Illinois at the time. I got myself together and jumped in the car and headed to the airport, which was only about a mile and a half from where I lived, so I got there pretty quickly. And I also had a police scanner in the car, so I was listening a little bit about what was going on, and, you know, by the time I got there, was able to determine that, you know, we apparently were uh, in the midst of some sort of airline hijacking, and that's about all we knew uh, right at the top. TWA Flight 541, carrying 83 passengers and a crew of four, remained under FBI guard at Williamson County Airport in Illinois. The jet was hijacked during a scheduled stop today in St. Louis by a woman claiming to have three sticks of dynamite strapped to her body. The date was December 21st, 1978, the same day as Trapnell and McNally's verdict hearing before a jury of their peers. That morning, someone in St. Louis had walked on to TWA Flight 541 to Kansas City, and once it was in the air, revealed they had a bomb and announced to the passengers that the airplane was being hijacked. Here's former FBI agent Bill Gavin, the reactive squad supervisor in St. Louis at the time. The strategy of any hijacking is to get that plane on the ground, number one, and two, and secure the lives and well-being of everybody on board that plane. As it turned out, this particular hijacker wanted the plane on the ground, too. And they had a very specific destination in mind. 
it was en route to Kansas City, and it was told to turn around and go to Marion, Illinois. Once the plane was safely on the ground in Marion, the authorities swarmed Williamson County Airport. We brought a hostage negotiator in from um, Kentucky. I was able to talk to that negotiator prior to him getting on the phone. In their conversation, the hostage negotiator was surprised to discover this hijacker had only one demand, the immediate release of one Garrett Brock Trapnell. This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our eighth episode, we examine the fourth and final hijacking in this crime saga. On December the 21st, 1978, we got up about, uh, I don't know, six or seven o'clock in the morning and heading to uh, the federal courthouse in Benton, Illinois. We got into the uh, courtroom and uh, they started the proceedings. Now, this is the last day of the trial. Martin McNally and Garrett Trapnell were on trial for attempted escape, air piracy, and kidnapping. These were charges with which both men were well acquainted as both were already convicted skyjackers. The men knew that if convicted on the new charges, which they almost certainly would be, they would receive life sentences on top of their existing life sentences, ensuring they would both die in prison. But Garrett Trapnell had other plans. What he did was to represent himself, and as such, he told the court that he needed to talk to his witnesses. And one of his main primary witnesses was going to be Robin Oswald. Robin Oswald, the then 16-year-old daughter of Barbara Oswald. In a case like this, one can't help but wonder, how could this be allowed to happen? How is it that Garrett Trapnell, career criminal, master manipulator, and the man most responsible for her mother's death would now be allowed access to this grieving teenaged girl? But this is the way our legal system works. In representing himself, Trapnell was granted privileges normally reserved for attorneys, including unsupervised meetings with defense witnesses even an indirect victim of the crimes he was being prosecuted for. The Fox had once again found a loophole in the system, and he planned to use it to his advantage. Yeah, Robin Robin was a very attractive young girl. She was like 16 years old and carried herself well. She was an outgoing personality. I think that at, at that particular point in time, you know, she was, she's a confused kid. She just needed somebody to talk to, to express her point of view. She just wanted a shoulder to lean on really more than anything else. After Barbara Oswald was killed in the attempted helicopter escape from Marion in May of 1978, FBI agent Bill Gavin dove into her background to learn more about her and her motivations. 
including the relationships she maintained with friends and family. And over the course of his investigation, he became a friend to Barbara's daughter, Robin. Being humane is also part of the investigator. You have to remember the, the people that you're dealing with, other human beings, and what is the circumstance or what are the circumstances under which you're dealing with them. This is a traumatic event for them, and so maybe you give a little bit more of yourself in a situation like this than you would if you grabbed some bank robber off the street, gave her a business card and said, listen, anything that you need, if you need to talk, by all means, call me. In the aftermath of Barbara Oswald's death, the Oswald family struggled to stay together. Friends reported that Robin, still a juvenile, began to break curfew, frequenting local discos and acting out. Here's M.R. Oswald, Robin's older sister, whose name has been changed at her request as portrayed by a voice actress reading from transcriptions of an interview. Everybody offered to take Robin, everybody, to live with them. But she didn't want to live with anybody. She wanted her mom. My sense was that there wasn't a paternal uh, person in her life at that particular point in time. And, and I know how important it was to my own kids. And I said, well, if there's something I can do, that's fine. And of course, kept on a professional level. It's only in the office, only with people. You have to be really careful about how you do things like that. Robin called on numerous occasions, I want to say at least a half a dozen occasions. She came into the office a couple of times just to sit and chat. I want to say that the contacts with Robin were frequent subsequent to her mother's death, uh, but not after that. Bill didn't know it at the time, but his contact with Robin dropped off soon after she began meeting with Garrett Trapnell as one of the witnesses for his upcoming trial. Martin McNally remembers this period of time vividly. He was able to get approval to talk to Robin every day. So I think it was every day she was coming in for uh, a legal visit to talk to him. But true to form, Garrett Trapnell wasn't just looking for a reliable witness. He was looking for someone he could manipulate to do his bidding. And in Robin Oswald, he'd found a vulnerable, impressionable young candidate. I do know during one of these visits that Travnell asked uh, Robin to show her breasts, pull up her shirt or something. When I heard that, I, I thought that was really, really rude. It wasn't natural. He shouldn't have done that to her. That's strictly humiliation and disrespect, but he did it. And I was mad about that. While she was doing this, somehow he convinced her that she should follow up on what her mother did. He convinced her that she should uh, commandeer a plane. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
Garrett Trapnell had once again cast his spell. And over the course of their interactions, Robin Oswald went from witness to accomplice. Robin took up the mission her mother had started. This time, the plan was for Robin to hijack a plane instead of a helicopter and land it at an airport near the prison. She would pull this off by strapping a bomb to herself and threatening to detonate it unless her orders were carried out. This last development made Martin McNally, still affected by the death of Barbara Oswald, truly uncomfortable. He came to me and he told me about this. And uh, I told him that uh, under no circumstances can we place into her hands a credible weapon, like a pistol, can't happen. Or an explosive device that will detonate and explode. Uh, we can't do that. She's immature and doesn't have the uh, mental capacity to understand what it is to uh, make a demand, a ransom demand, something like this, to have a prisoner release and so forth. Because if it doesn't work and they don't make the release, and she would follow through and press the button. It was my belief that just the threat of uh, detonation on a plane and killing all the people would be sufficient to win the release of Trabnell with me. Yet, both men knew that any hijacking was still a dangerous prospect. Trapnell even had the bullet wounds to prove it. But for Trap, the allure of freedom was too much, especially when he could leave the most dangerous tasks to a naive, grief-spun teenager. In an interview years later, Trapnell would admit he felt sorry for Robin, that he felt responsible for her mother's death. But at the same time, he was quoted saying, I wanted to get out of prison. So there they were, with their trial for the last escape attempt quickly approaching, and the plans for their next escape attempt now in the works. What we provided was the uh, information on how she could get uh, road flares and uh, wires and all this other stuff and batteries and just tape them up and so forth and so on. With their guidance, Robin was able to assemble a decoy bomb which she would use in the hijacking. And Trapnell picked her intended target, TWA Flight 541 to Kansas City. This brings us back to the day of their trial and the day of the hijacking, December 21st, 1978. When we found out that a plane had been hijacked, from St. Louis to Kansas City. We had uh, agents, we had an office at the airport at Lambert, and uh, we were able to find out that the, that the plane was squawking on the uh, hijack code. Agent Bill Gavin's instincts kicked in when he learned the plane was being rerouted to Marion, Illinois. It was just one of those things, the bell goes off, it happens in law enforcement, you know, you say something's talking to me and I don't know what it is and I have to find out what it is. There was just something inside of me that said, let's see if Robin Oswald's at home. We called the house and she wasn't at home and she hadn't been at home. 
So I said to the guys in the squad, look, here's what I want you to do. Go to the airport, look at the garage. We knew the description of her car and the license plate on her car. I want you to go to the airport garage, and I want you to go to the hotels all around the airport to see if we can find the car. The guys went out, and sure enough, they found her car at a hotel at Lambert. And that's when we got the description of a young girl um, with dynamite and, uh, and a detonating device in the plane. She let a flight attendant know that she had a bomb strapped to her and the flight attendant could see what she described as dynamite with wire and a, a bell kind of thing to uh, initiate the uh, explosion. That's going to petrify anybody on board. It's going to make the flight attendant do exactly what they should be doing. Turning that plane around and going to the airport, landing it on the ground. The plane touched down at a small airport not far from the Marion Supermax Penitentiary. When I got to the airport boundary, I could see that our remote truck was already at the parking lot of the main terminal, so I knew my boss was there. So I decided that really it would be better for me to try to get to a different vantage point on the air, airport grounds. That's local radio reporter Joey Helaney again, who was on the ground during the hijacking. At about that time, a fire truck uh, pulled up on the frontage road and I knew those guys. So I parked my car and jumped on the back of the fire truck and uh, rode the fire truck over to where airport control tower was. And um, that's where I ended up camping out for the next several hours, waiting to see uh, what would happen. At some point in the day, we determined from talking to the police officers that were in the area where we were that the hijacker, uh, who turned out to be Robin Oswald, was demanding the release of Garrett Trapnell. And we had covered that earlier hijacking, so I, I knew who Garrett Trapnell was. With press now on the scene, the story began to make national news. It wasn't long before word reached the courthouse in nearby Benton. I think me and Trapnell were in the uh, marshal's office. We were talking to Marsha Johnson. She was the assistant assistant U.S. attorney on this. And we were talking about a plea deal. A marshal came in to the room, and Marsha Johnson was facing us, and the marshal came in and went over her neck and she, uh, told her something. And she just stood up like she was shocked and electrocuted, and her eyes went wide open. And she immediately turned back and ran out of the office. And uh, I told Trapp, I said, uh, I think it's on. She just got told uh, the word. That's exactly what happened. Garrett Trapnell and Martin McNally were now aware their plan was working. And once again, freedom seemed within reach. When we went back into court, one of Marshall asked another Marshalls, if one goes, uh, who's going? And the other guy said, if one goes, they both go. And they laid up the chains and the handcuffs and leg irons on the table, getting ready to move us. I'm sitting there nice, 
and easy, and I'm looking at the judge, and I got a smirk on my face. And I'm thinking in my head that, uh, hey, I don't care what you do here today. I'm leaving. We're leaving this court, and we're leaving this city, and we're getting the hell into the air. Back at the airport, an FBI negotiator, a man named Bernard Thompson, had been called in to deal with the hijacker. Once Thompson learned it was Robin Oswald, he called in fellow agent Bill Gavin, who knew Robin well. It's a big help to the negotiators to be able to know who they are dealing with and all the background, rather than to come in cold and try to uh, drill down and find that out on the scene. They asked Robin if Bill Gavin was here, would she like to talk to Bill Gavin? And she said, no, I absolutely do not want to because he'll make me get off this plane. The FBI even tracked down Robin's older sister, who is now living in Oregon, to see if she would fly in immediately to help with negotiations. But Robin's sister, still traumatized by her mother's death, couldn't bear to confront another family tragedy in the making. The FBI tracked me down to a girlfriend's house, and they called, and they really tried to talk me into flying back and be part of the negotiations because I'm the oldest, I'm the big sister, and I was just like, I can't do it. I'm done. I just couldn't be involved and and survive myself, you know? Good evening. A teenage girl is holding more than 80 people hostage aboard a TWA jetliner. On board are the hostages and Robin Oswald claims to have three sticks of dynamite strapped to her body. The woman wants to free Garrett Trapnell, serving a life term. Her mother, Barbara Oswald, was killed last May while trying to free the same man. The eyes of the nation were now on Robin Oswald, a teenaged hijacker mourning the recent death of her mother who was in way over her head. She never struck me as being a bad kid, you know, the bad seed who you just couldn't tolerate, you know. She struck me as being a decent person. But obviously, she went off the deep end on this one. Robin didn't know it at the time, but FBI snipers had already taken positions around the airport. And if they sensed negotiations were headed south, they'd shoot to kill. The standoff between Robin Oswald and authorities went on for most of a day. As far as they were concerned, she was a crazy person, armed with a bomb, and threatening to murder every passenger on board if Garrett Trapnell wasn't released from prison. There were FBI sharpshooters that had taken positions all around the airport perimeter, kind of in the in the weeds and in the uh, rough landscape that surrounded this airport. So. There were a lot of law enforcement people out there that Robin couldn't see at the time. But as the hours passed, Robin's composure began to crack. Robin's not sophisticated, horrible hijacker. She's a kid that did something stupid. But she got a little tense as the sun started to set. And the people on board the plane 
saw an opportunity. And we were able to get individuals off the plane. There were, there were good-natured people on the plane. Some of the guys would stand up and block our view, and while they blocked our view, people get off the plane. And it was just one of those things. Even as the sun set and passengers were sneaking off the plane, Robin stuck to her only demand. Bring me Garrett Trapnell. But back at the courthouse in Benton, Illinois, Martin McNally was starting to lose faith. For hours and hours, we waited. Trapnell didn't usually chain smoke, but that particular day, he did chain smoke. At about 7 or 8 o'clock, I told Trap, it's over. We aren't going anywhere. And Mac's instincts were right. Though she'd been mentored by a notoriously manipulative criminal with decades of experience, Robin's efforts were no match for an FBI negotiator. Eventually, the negotiator was able to uh, determine that what she had was uh, not any dynamite. There were simply uh, flares, breakdowns of the cars, you know, those kinds of flares that she had. And she had some bell wire wrapped around it with a bell uh, compressor, but it wasn't going to do anything. She got off the plane, and she was restrained getting off the plane and uh, physically restrained, not in handcuffs at, at that particular time. And when she came out, she recognized me there, and she gave me a hug and said she was sorry. I said, Robin, you know what you did was wrong. It never should have been done. Let's see that we can make the best of this right now. Uh, you need to go with, these, uh, with the rest of the agents over here and with the police, and uh, you're going to be arraigned, and that's what's happened. And, and to the best of my knowledge, I never talked to Robin again after that. The jury came in, and we were brought back into the court, and they announced guilty on all counts. Uh, everything, guilty on everything. So then uh, we went back into the marshal's cage. They cuffed us up, leg irons, handcuffs. They said, let's go. Good evening. A DC-9 jetliner was hijacked today by a teenaged girl on a bizarre mission in the sky over southern Illinois. The girl's mother had been killed this year in another hijack attempt. It is an insane connection. I mean, for someone who barely had any contact with either of these women, I mean, just in the visiting room at the prison, to convince two ladies to risk their lives, and in one case, give up their lives, to break him out of prison, that's extraordinary. And then for Garrett to convince Martin that this escape attempt was a viable plan, you know, that's yet another example of his ability to persuade people because there was no way. I mean, the influential power that Garrett Trapnell must have had over people. I still shake my head today at this guy. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody quite like Garrett Trapnell. Trapnell was imprisoned for 1972 hijacking. He is described by prison authorities as an extreme escape risk, and he discussed this obsession last year with Dan Rather on 60 Minutes. I've been here for six years. Without hope, you have nothing. He's just an evil person. Garrett Brockdreck Neville was evil. He did whatever he could get away with that would benefit him and him alone. He didn't care about anybody else other than Garrett Brockdreck Neville. 
Everybody looks at law enforcement as kind of a black and white set of circumstances. You know, it's either good or it's bad. We live in a world of gray. There's very little white and very little black. And so you have to think about what goes on in people's lives, what stimulated them, what, what prompted them to do what they did, stupid as it might have been. Why did they do it and, and are they salvageable? And, and I think in this particular case, she was salvageable. She had to pay the price, but I think she probably learned from that horrible mistake. In the end, Robin Oswald was tried as a juvenile, but her life and the lives of her family members would never be the same. Here's M.R. Oswald again. After the hijacking, the press was just all over the place. There was so much misinformation out there. They talked to her hairdresser. In fact, we couldn't even get out of my mom's house. We were just basically captives inside the house. Robin served her time at the Menninger Foundation, a clinic and sanatorium for mental wellness in Houston, Texas. Robin changed her name and tried to move on. Without going into specifics to protect her privacy as a victim, she suffered enormously during the next decade. Due to her well-publicized crime that was exploited in the tabloid press, holding down a job and starting over was virtually impossible. Her life in essence, had been ruined. The tragic effects that Garrett Trapnell and by association Martin McNally had on the Oswald family were never lost on Mac. In fact, it still haunts him to this day. I'm really, really regretful and sorry that we destroyed uh, Barbara Oswald and her daughter and we really brought bad things into their life. I always felt very bad about involving her in this, but uh, we were monsters. Me and Trabnell, we were monsters. But uh, that's the way it goes. We would have done anything to get out of prison. Okay. Next question. As a result of the events of 1978, Martin McNally was given another life sentence for air piracy, 75 years for kidnapping, and five years each on charges of attempted escape and conspiracy. The years were added consecutively to his life sentence from 1972. And all told, McNally's release date was now set for the unimaginably distant year of 2082. Despite his best efforts, it seemed Martin McNally was destined to die in prison. Unless, of course, he had one more escape attempt left in him. That's next time on American Skyjacker. When I'm talking to this examiner, I'm explaining about myself, what I've done in prison and so forth. And I said, for the very first time since I've been in prison, 37 years, I can now say that, hey, it was me. I pulled the score in 1972. And I can assure you, Mr. Examiner, 
that I have no intentions of committing any crimes again. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpol. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morecambe. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>